Hello, church. Good morning. I would like to say thank you to our amazing pastoral staff at Free Methodist for the invitation to preach this morning. I have a deep love for this church. 9.30 is my service, so hello. Good morning. Um, It's an honor to serve our congregation, so thank you so much for your love and your support. This is home for me, and I am grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, For those of you who do not know me, my name is Shannon Blarum. I work as the Director of Residence Life at Westmont College, and I am a conference ministerial candidate, a CMC for the Free Methodist Church. Uh, I really owe a lot of thanks to our pastoral staff who has affirmed and has mentored me in my pursuit to be a pastor, um, to be able to continue to serve the church and to serve Westmont with my pastoral gifts. So thank you, pastors. And Colleen's not here, but she'll, she'll listen to the recording eventually and know that I'm grateful for her. Our text. This Sunday, the lectionary takes us to Genesis 28, 10 through 19, Jacob's dream at Bethel. The text is the continuing narrative of the drama between Jacob and his brother Esau. It is dramatic, soap opera worthy, telenovela perfection. Last week, we learned Jacob pressures Esau to release his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. However, the story does not end there. It gets more dramatic. It gets more complex. Jacob, with his mother Rebekah, poses Jacob as Esau so that he might steal the inherited blessing that Isaac, his father, intended for Esau. Jacob, the scheming little brother, has yet again tricked his older brother out of his birthright. It's a legacy, an inheritance not taken lightly in those days. This is not like me stealing my sister's sweater (laughs) or taking my brother's movies and never returning them. Jacob is stealing Esau's inheritance. He robs, he deceives, and with the help of his mother, tricks his father to give the inheritance and blessing to him. Now, there's lots of things I can say about all the players of this text, but today we're focusing on Jacob. We're focusing on Jacob's character. It's key before we read Genesis 28. You see, Jacob, he manipulates. He uses his intellect to get what he believes is rightfully his. Imagine if your younger brother or sister takes what you were to inherit from your parents in the will. They trick your aging parent to rewrite the will to ensure that they get the inheritance you were supposed to have, leaving you with nothing. They usurped what was supposed to go to you. Families fight consistently about trusts and wills. It's divisive and painful, and we see that in this family. Jacob, he's that younger sibling. He is truly deceitful, which pays homage to his name. Jacob means trickster. And in chapter 28, we find Jacob running. Esau, enraged by his brother's deceit, is seeking to kill him. So Jacob runs, and he's on the road, alone, seemingly getting away from his problems. He has tricked and made a mortal enemy of his brother. He has misled and disappointed his father, and there is no hope that he can return back home. Rebecca, his doting mother, 
has suggested he take a long trip to her homeland to find himself a wife to go with all this newfound inheritance. Because that's the solution to our problems, folks. Find a wife and spend all your money, right? So Jacob, he runs. And in his avoidance, he is thrust into the wilderness, the unknown, and in the mystery of self. So please, join me in reading Genesis 28, 10 through 19. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. Thank you for how your word inspires us, brings creativity, convicts us, reminds us that we are loved. Thank you for how your word can continue to build us up, not only in our faith with you, but in our faith and relationship with one another. Thank you, God, for the fact that this word is not just my words, but it's your word. It's a a word meant for the church. And Father, I pray that, Lord, in humility, I can continue to make this about you, that I can step aside and trust and know and see how your Holy Spirit is planting this word in our hearts today. And that that word will stay with us this week and the weeks ahead as it continues to affirm who we are in you, as we know that you are a God of love, a God who loves us deeply and is consistently meeting us in our journeys and our travels and the areas of life that maybe we don't want to necessarily admit. You show up and you bring change. Lord, be with us this morning as we unpack your word. Thank you. As always, I pray, God, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. (sighs) Confession. When I was in college, I used to steal Campus Safety's golf carts and take them on joyrides around campus. I would also climb roofs of various buildings and drop water balloons on people. 
I would steal ro random road signs with my buddy Brandon. Whoops. I even figured out how to keep the college chapel unlocked so I could sneak all of my friends into the building, climb the hidden stairwell, and sit on the roof to look at the stars and have all the laughs. This is the legacy of a Bible theology major who would become the director of residence life at Westmont College. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> uh, I, I relate to Jacob. I can be mischievous, a trickster. And when campus safety would eventually catch me in my fun, I would run. There was no way that I was going to be caught and face the music for my small indiscretions. I would run. I was good at running, and I was good at hiding. In some ways, it's probably natural to run, hide, and not always face the consequences of our choices. It's innate, even if it is small pranks and silly college fun. In all seriousness, I suspect many of us know what it's like to live a life on the run. Some of us are running from our past, trying to escape guilt, regret, failures, disappointments. Some are trying to get away from the pain, losses, and brokenness of life. Sometimes we just want to leave behind the part of our lives or ourselves we dislike. Other times, we're running towards the future. For some, life on the run is search for something or someone new, a job, a relationship. Maybe it's the search for answers. Who am I? What is this life all about? What's my purpose? Surely what we're looking for is out there in this future, somewhere if we can just get there. Either way, we run from the present, whether that is running from our past or running to our future. We run from the realities that are often difficult for us to accept or work through. Often we run because it's simply too stressful, painful, and scary because we are dealing with our true selves and the realities of how our sin has affected others. I was just recently reading an article discussing the implications of social media and how it serves as a temporary coping mechanism against loneliness and depression, feeding into social media addiction, sort of a newer phenomenon for many people in the work of psychology and in my field, student affairs. People feel lonely or anxious. They overshare on social media to feel good, often creating an ideal version of themselves, but then the real isn't true reality, nor their true self, which causes greater disconnection and furthers the feeling of loneliness and anxiety. And the cycle repeats. I feel lonely. I feel anxious. Therefore, I share on social media and overshare in a way that I get all the likes on my Instagram, all the likes on my Facebook, and feel validated. In fact, it releases dopamine, scientists have proved. And so then, if it's not my true self, that fades away, and then I'm left again with my loneliness, and then the cycle repeats. In the article, it asked, why are we afraid of our true selves? Additionally, as I was thinking about this article, my husband and I got to celebrate 10 years of marriage. Heyo, yay us. Um, and we traveled to Europe, and we were visiting all of these places that I felt were so sacred. And I remember walking into the Notre Dame, or we walked into the Vatican, or we're seeing these areas where they're meant for worship. And I was just so struck by the amount of people with selfie sticks. 
selfie, 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 and more selfie. And I thought, wow, the irony of this. A place that's meant to be worshiping God is actually a place where people are worshiping themselves. And they're validating their significance by being in this place, right? And it just struck me. So even social media is a platform in which maybe we use it to run away from our problems and to numb ourselves to the truth of who we are. In Genesis 28, we see Jacob running. We see him avoiding the consequences of his actions. If Jacob had Facebook, he might have posted, leaving home to find a wife, hashtag blessed, hashtag mom's the best. Conveniently, leaving out that he just robbed his brother of his inheritance. And he's afraid that his brother's going to kill him. And that is why he's leaving. Verse 10 and 11 describe Jacob leaving Beersheba, going towards Haran. And in the Hebrew, the verbs paint a scenario where Jacob is stumbling, literally striking upon no particular place. He is aimless, stuck in the land of the in-between, in the middle of what was familiar and what is new. He's in the in-between of his past and his future. And he had not arrived at his destination. And because the sun was setting, Jacob decides to stay the night. He takes a stone, he places it under his head, and he falls asleep. And it's here that God chooses to meet Jacob. When Jacob isn't running, Jacob is still. He's asleep. And that's where God meets him. In verse 12, Jacob begins to dream. He sees a ladder that reaches to heaven with angels, messengers of God going up and down on it. You should not think of it as like a ladder in the contemporary sense of the word, but rather something like the Mesopotamian ziggurat. Now, my husband and I were trying to figure out why do we call it a ladder. My theory is because who likes to say the word ziggurat, right? But this is what you should be imagining when you see this dream. It's a ramp-like structure that served as a divine sanctuary through which heaven and earth were connected. The messengers then would travel up and down, up and down, mediating between heaven and earth, communicating between the two. Jacob would have anticipated that the messengers would be the ones to bring the word of God. But what is surprising about this text? The one to bring the message is in verse 13. It's God. God is standing next to Jacob and speaks directly to him. That is radical. There is no mediator or messenger. No. God is close, personal, and present, speaking directly to Jacob. He sees Jacob. And when God is standing next to Jacob, he offers these words in verses 13 through 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
God promises three things to Jacob in this dream. The first promise, I am with you. God says in verse 13, I am the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I am your God too. The covenant that I made with Abraham, I too will honor that covenant through you. I am with you. The second promise, I will keep you wherever you go. In verse 15, we see that God is saying, I will be with you on this journey. Every single day, I will keep you wherever you go. The third promise, I will bring you back to this land. Again, in verse 15, we hear God saying to Jacob, I will bring you home. From this exile that you are embarking on, I will bring you home. What's even more radical, in my opinion, besides God just speaking directly to Jacob, is that these promises do not contain a word of judgment regarding Jacob's prior actions with regard to his brother and father. Rather, God's address to Jacob contains one unconditional promise after the other. It's pure grace. Jacob is truly undeserving. But what's powerful is that God meets him in the place of in-between, this place where it's not about the past and it's not about the future, and he offers words of promise, not judgment. God speaks directly to Jacob. And in this text, God is beside Jacob, reassuring him that he is not alone. What strikes me is that God is bigger than Jacob's trickery. God will find us in our self-deception and offer love, grace, and renewed promise instead of judgment. That is what we learn about God's character in this text. I believe that's why in verse 16, we see Jacob waking from his dream a different man. Before, he was deceptive, tricking his brother, robbing him of his birthright, escaping into the desert to avoid his circumstances. Now, Jacob is in awe, fearful of the sacred, and humbled by the promises of God. Jacob's response to this dream, to this encounter with God, is worship. He vows to serve God and builds an altar, converting his pillow into a memorial of God's presence, naming the site Bethel, or house of God, where God is with us. God is here. Jacob understands the blessing was more than he deserved. He understood that the blessing was staggering in its scope. He understood that a love like this can never be repaid. Jacob knew that in response to God's love, he should give his love and devotion in return. He would worship him. He would acknowledge him with a tithe of his income. He would honor him with his life. What we see in this text is that the only way for true transformation to happen is when we just acknowledge, that's grace. I am undeserving. It's a paradox. I don't understand why I'm given this grace. But that's God's character. He's relentless. He loves us, and he will give it to us each and every day. This story has deep significance for us as a church. Genesis 28 invites us into the profound truth that no matter, again, our self-deception, personal avoidance, or guilt, we will never, ever escape the love of God. 
We are seen, fully known, and deeply loved. We can fool ourselves to think, yeah, I can run from God, but the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are never, ever, ever alone. God is relentless, and God's love is powerfully transformative that it can meet us in our avoidance and self-denial. In this text, we see God's character that no matter our indiscretions, we are still God's chosen people because God radically loves us. It's unconditional, unwarranted, and unjustified. And instead of being met with judgment, God meets us and speaks directly to us. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back home. It's this truth that welcomes us into the fullness of the gospel. It foreshadows the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace that brings salvation to all of us today. Again, we can run, we can hide, good luck, but the truth is we can never escape the love of God. It is too powerful. And if we need a reminder, Romans 8, 38 through 29, or 39, <laughs> For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we see is God's character is consistent from Old Testament to New Testament. The simple truth of today's message is that we are radically loved and relentlessly pursued. We don't deserve it. By any means, but God still chooses us and loves us. Church, I believe we need to hear this message, embrace it, and allow it to bring us to worship in the way that Jacob worshiped. Personally, for me, when I was reflecting on this text, I was convicted in a good way. I was reminded that I sing because I know my God loves me. It's probably why sometimes I get weepy. I'm struck by the love of God. I preach because I've been touched by God's grace and it has changed me. And I can't help but talk about the good news of the gospel. I serve not because there's anything fantastic about me, but because I've been touched by the love of God and it consistently sanctifies me so that I can give to others because so much has been given to me. If you're running, if you're hiding, or if you're in denial, or maybe you have loved ones that you're praying for that you can already imagine that kind of fit this Jacob motif. May the love of God speak to you and them today. You are enough. You've always been enough. No matter the wilderness you escape to, God sees you. God loves you. And God will always speak loving truth in your life when God meets you in the in-between places. A.W. Tozer said it best. Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you, knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, knowing your age, and knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper and what you'll eat for breakfast, where you'll sleep tonight, how much your clothing cost, who your parents were, he knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. 
He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. If you are out of the fold and away from God, put your name in the words of John 3.16 and say, Lord, it is I. I am the cause and reason why thou didst on earth come to die. That kind of positive personal faith and a personal redeemer is what saves you. If you'll just rush in there, you do not have to know all the theology and all the right words. You can say, I am the one he came to die for. Write it down in your heart and say, Jesus, this is me, thee and me, as though there were no others. Have that kind of personalized belief in a personal Lord and Savior. My encouragement to us today is that we allow ourselves to rest in the profound truth that God loves us and that it meets us in the in-between places of our lives and brings transformation. It's not met with judgment. No, it's met with love. And the more and more that we welcome that love in our life, the more and more that we can continue to be people who worship, not just here on Sunday mornings, but everywhere we go, professing the true power of God's grace in our lives. So be blessed today, church. May this word encourage you not just today, but in the days and weeks ahead, that the Lord will set you up so that you will be reminded of how much you are loved. Be blessed today, church. Thank you.